The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. How's it going? And welcome to episode 89 of On The Wire, proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. Follow the pod on the Twitter at On The Wire Pod. Of course, if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, please take a second to let us know what you think. I am Adam Howe. You can follow me on the Twitter at 80grade. That's all spelled out. And I'm once again joined by Kevin Hastings, who should be followed on the Twitter at Hastings Kevin. And despite what you might have seen on the Twitter, is safe and sound far away from any danger of molten lava, volcano eruptions. So I'm glad to see you here, Kevin. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's actually been absolutely amazing since none of the flows here on the Big Island are heading towards any inhabited areas. It's just been awesome to go check it out and get some of those photos. So yeah, it's been pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, that's what everybody keeps saying. Hey, are you safe? We get a confirmation. Yes, I'm safe. Then please let me see as much as many videos and photos as you can get. Then it's cool. If you're not safe, not as cool. But uh, luckily, look, you guys are good to go. All right. Enough talk about the dangers of living on a volcanic island. And we're going to get right into our what could be very long slash very lucrative as far as information goes episode. We're going to be talking about some first-year players, basically. Not first-year players as in a first-year player draft, but first players that may make their debut in the majors in 2023. And who better to have with us on the show to talk about that than James Anderson, the assistant baseball editor and lead prospect and analyst over at rotowire.com. James can be heard regularly on the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast through the offseason. I believe goes every Thursday and, of course, can be found contributing on rotowire.com. His ever-evolving top 400 prospect and top 400 dynasty rankings. You follow James on the Twitter, if you're not already, at RealJRAnderson. And today we'll be, like I said, picking his brain about players from his top 100 list that could be making a surprise impact in the 2023 redraft season. Before we get into all that, James, thanks again for joining us. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me on, and I've got my got my Gladiator draft set on auto, so ready to roll. Oh, I should probably have checked that before doing that. I was on deck before we hit record. <laughs> I'm in a two-hour draft right now. Yeah, these things have been, they've been hot. They've been hot. They've been filling like crazy. I know we've all done some. James, you were in the first one, right? I was. I've done, I'm currently in my fifth one. And I think that's going to be it for me on this first contest. 
definitely think it makes sense to enter at least a few entries uh, just to try to make a run at the overall and just the nature of the format. I think it's nice to have more than just one team that could be a shot, but it's just been such a blast. Yeah, man, when you have as little control in season as you possibly could <laughs> in a format, yeah, I go that sentiment. It's only my second one. I'm trying to get at least one more in before this first contest fills up. I know there's some debate on Twitter whether or not that's going to be this month or maybe possibly push it all the way to January, but they've been filling up really quick. They've been a lot yeah, of fun, though. Uh, I think I know there are some people that are going to be up in like the 30, 40 <laughs> yeah. entry range. I just it's so fun because it's kind of like I've, I've kind of compared it to a board game or, or something like that, where it's just you're trying to figure out the right strategies and you're not exactly sure what the right strategies are going to be and Obviously, a lot of luck is going to go into it, but it's just, it's really fun trying to navigate the different areas of the draft and the different stats that you have to assemble while also trying to avoid any landmines. Yeah, you don't even know what those stats are yet, just because it's like you've got teams that are grabbing four closers and you've got teams that are punting it all together. That's just on the pitching side. Never mind how much power you're going to need, how much speed are you going to need, how many guys are going to get hurt. Obviously, that was the number one thought going into these things. It'll be it'll be interesting to analyze this time next year to see what kind of actually ended up working. And it could, could totally flip next year as well. Absolutely. And they're, they'll probably do a second batch. Like you said, they're going to, I think it was a, a, a thousand. Was it a, up to a thousand teams or or a hundred leagues? They had a limit. for 100 leagues. Yeah. Thank you. A hundred leagues. That's much different. And they'll probably do a Gladiator 2 in like, in Jan- once that one fills and they'll start a new batch. And it'll be interesting to see how that, the ADP from obviously drafts in November in December compare to what they're doing in March, which is a whole nother podcast, I'm sure. But let's get into some things that have been happening since we last spoke, Kevin. A couple signings, a couple free agent rumors. We're going to hit up four things here. We're going to bunch up this first one, though. A couple of pitchers have signed with new teams, namely Mike Clevenger signs with the Chicago White Sox. Zach Eflin gets a three-year deal with Tampa Bay to be closer to home in Orlando. And then Matthew Boyd returns to the Detroit Tigers. Of these three, like which one do you think are you the most interested in comparison to where you were before they signed? I think it's Eflin. Clevenger still scares me. He hasn't been good since the injury, and there hasn't been a lot of successful guys that have had two Tommy John surgeries. So I'm out on him, even at cost, and he's not really that inexpensive as far as ADP and DCs at 326 and a min of 240. I mean, that I am definitely not interested anywhere near that min and probably not at the average either. Flynn is really interesting to me. Of course, we all get interested when when a, any player and specifically pitchers sign in Tampa, but he has been very consistent, at least ERA wise. Now the strikeouts have dropped the past couple of seasons, but it, there's a 0.2 range is over the last four seasons, ranging from 397 to 417. So he's been very consistent there. And I think that we would expect that for him to at least maintain that, if not be on the low side or improve a little bit. 
So this is really interesting. I think he's the most likely to get consistent starts. I think he'll give us the most innings of the three by far. Matthew Boyd is interesting to me as he has been for years for a lot of us, but we, we haven't seen anything out of him yet coming back from this injury or much anyway. He was up in Seattle for a little bit there towards the end of 2022, but I think this does, I think this gives Eflin a bit of a bump for me. Yeah, the Matthew Boyd, of course, going back to Detroit, it's, we all were Boyd boys, if you will, back in 2019 or what have you. But it's a one-year deal. James, you see this being just an opportunity for Boyd to get, find a place where he can be possibly in a rotation. They have some, obviously, health concerns with some of their young guys that you'd expect would be in the rotation, at least to start the season, to bring his value back up and then possibly find his way into a longer-term deal if he can put it back together. Yeah, I think that's what he's shooting for. I'm not really interested. I've actually never really been that in on Boyd and hasn't thrown over 80 innings since 2019. I just He might be able to kind of prove that he can handle 100-plus innings this year and then go out and maybe get a, a two-year deal or something like that, but I just don't see much upside. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty obvious statement. Hey, this is going to be an opportunity in a really good park where I, I have history and I maybe I can put things back together. That is Matthew Boyd to get something a little bit more solid in a contract moving forward after the 2023 season. And then, hey, who knows? Maybe Detroit will actually trade him halfway through the season like we all speculated that they they would in his in his prime. All right, another pitcher who looks like he might sign with a major league club is Drew Wierzynski, who's been reported he's going to be coming back over from the KBO where he spent the last four seasons. Prior to that, he was with the Miami Marlins and a couple other squads in the minors, but he did not make one start for a major league team before going over to the KBO. And since then, he's made at least 30 starts in each of the past four seasons over there in Korea. Can he make his way back, James, to a major league rotation spot and actually be somebody that might be interesting, especially in these days? I think it's going to be very context dependent on whether I'm interested at all. I'm sure there are some favorable landing spots, places with good home parks, but I don't really see a first division team being in on him. Like, I don't think he's quite the caliber that a contending team has room for in their rotation. And there's not, sometimes you'll get a guy that, that comes back from the KBO and they do solid from a ratio standpoint, but I don't think we've really seen anyone come over and show much ceiling. And we've seen some guys come over and just put up like a five, five ERA. So I don't mind if, if he comes over and is serviceable in a DC. I don't really mind if I miss out on that. Yeah, that's probably fair. I grabbed him just in my DC that just completed yesterday, I think in round 47. And it's just the logic there was if he is going to find his way into a rotation, even if it's on a bad team, he's somebody who could actually provide innings in a situation where he's not starting on my opening day roster per se, but somebody that might be able to fill in. Kevin, have you, I know we talked about the uh, those coming over for the first time from either Japan or Korea, not being that interested in their first year back, but these guys that have spent some time in Major League Baseball and then move over and then go overseas and then come back. What's your interest level in that scenario? It's intriguing. And the biggest thing that sticks out to me is how much his ground ball rate went 
up pitching in Korea. And I don't know if that is something that he changed and something they had him do specifically, or if that's just the way the league in general, if more balls are hit on the ground, because the ground ball rates are amazing that he had 63.7%, the lowest over the past three seasons. And you mentioned him having 30 starts in each of those seasons. So that's really intriguing to me and worth keeping an eye on. And, it's like James said, I think some that some landing spots will definitely be more intriguing than others. But 47th round of a DC where you grabbed him, I think it's worth a shot there. Yeah, I'd venture to guess it will determine where he signs will determine if he gets an ADP bump in general, of course. All right, let's move on to some hitters changing teams. Kevin, simply put, the rich get richer. Jose Abreu signs with the Houston Astros to be their everyday first baseman, maybe spell some time in DH every once in a while. But is there anything else to say about this situation beyond him signing in like a most favorable park like Colorado or Cincinnati, which we all knew wasn't going to happen? Was there a better place for him to have signed? It'd be tough to find one. It looks like he'll slot in behind Altuve, Bregman, and Alvarez and in front of Tucker and Jeremy Pena. It doesn't get much better than that for his counting stats. I think we all expect the home runs to come back at least a little bit. He he was hitting a lot of his fly balls the opposite way in, in 2022, and that, that probably contributed quite a bit to the drop in home runs with his his hard hit metrics being in line with his career numbers. So it's probably that the fly balls are being hit the opposite way. So there I'm, I won't give him, I'm not as excited and jumping on, Ooh, Crawford boxes, Crawford boxes. He was pulling the ball less so that they may not come into play as much as some people think. However, so far in drafts, he's been a nice value for first base. If you're missing off, missing out on the very top guys he's probably going to jump up a good two three rounds i would think at this point if you already grabbed him awesome it's going to be interesting to see how high we have to go to get him from here on out yeah james how high are you is this move pushing jose abreu up your board enough for you're making him like right now his adp in draft champions is buck 27 so he's going right after Reese Hoskins, right after CJ Crone, and just about 20 picks before Christian Walker. Is this move to Houston moving him up your personal bo- draft boards enough where you're still going to pay the possible higher price? I think he should definitely go ahead of Hoskins and Crone and probably Nathaniel Lowe. He just seems like a classic Astro. I don't know if that's just because he's like a Cuban first baseman, but I think it's just a great fit. I think he's going to be a RBI machine. I don't necessarily love taking a first baseman where he goes. I like getting either one of those really premium first basemen that go in the first few rounds, or I like waiting for the kind of rowdy nailer area. But I definitely, I mean, from a counting stat standpoint, I think he's just going to be a total machine. But there's just, there's other stuff that kind of goes in that range that I think is harder to find than what Brady's going to give you. Yeah, that are, he's always, until recently, he's always been an RBI machine. So to put him in that situation in Houston, I'm on board with that statement, of course. And if he's going above Nathaniel Lowe, he's, his ADP is 101. So we're talking a top 100 pick here is what you're probably going to be seeing him go as 
go moving forward, or at least as time goes on, we'll start seeing the ADP average out. All right, James, last grouping here I wanted to get your thoughts on. The Nationals, they continue to shop in the clearance rack. They signed Heimer Candelario in a one-year deal after the Tigers decided not to tender him a contract through arbitration. And more recently, former Arizona outfield Stone Garrett to a one-year major league deal. Do either one of these guys find their way into a starting fantasy rosters now that they're in Washington, who they very well could still be starting on that in that lineup? Yeah, I, I might go back to the well on Heimer. I, he was probably one of my top five biggest misses from last season. I had a ton of Candelario, and he just completely fell flat, basically. He was someone that you were either dropping or benching, and it's just such a massive home park upgrade for him. I think Detroit was the worst park by StatCast's home run park factors last year, and the Nationals are kind of like a, a borderline top 10 park. So that part's great, right? Like he was, he never hit 20 home runs with the Tigers, and he had some big time double seasons, 42 doubles in 2021. I could see him maybe having career year. I mean, his year in the pandemic season was probably his career year, but like his career year over a full season could be this year. The depth chart there is just a total mess even if you're not a big (laughs) candelario fan it's hard to not see him as one of their four or five best hitters on that roster i maybe he's just not good but i think he will get a pretty long leash especially given that they were willing to commit five million to him yeah and then also i think it also speaks volumes to carter keboom situation in washington and how that is pretty much come to a head as well. Kevin, is there any interest in Stone Garrett? Do you see him getting any any run in the outfield after that short stint in Arizona at the major league level? I think it's, we would think so. If you look at roster resource at, at the moment, Lane Thomas, his spot is secure. And then we have Alex Call and Victor Robles and the other two outfield spots i could see stone garrett getting some run here between uh outfield and designated hitter but yeah this lineup is questionable so so, like we we were talking with the pirates last week i like guys that are good hitters on bad teams if they're near the top of the lineup but i'm afraid he would be towards the bottom and in that case, even if he's performing well, the runs and RBI just will not be there. And they're very valuable. It's not just plate appearances. We're, everybody's on the maximizing plate appearances and at-bats and innings pits for pitchers train, but they still have to be quality plate appearances. And it, when you're at the bottom of a bad lineup, the runs and RBIs just aren't there. And I think that's a couple of categories. We just assume if we're hitting home runs – we're going to have RBIs and we just assume if guys are getting on base, they're going to score runs. And when you're at the bottom of a bad lineup, that's not the case. No, you get stranded more often than not. All right. Yeah. Sounds like Lario with a situation where he's going to be in the near the top or at least in the top half of that lineup playing every day at third base. He has a little bit more opportunity to be at least a, a corner infielder on a starting roster. Maybe not a starting third baseman unless injuries are plaguing your team and you have no choice. But still an opportunity there to uh, to gain a little bit more, at least a little bit more than Stone Garrett might provide in his situation in the outfield. 
All right, now it's time to get to that main discussion of the episode, and that is picking out the prospects and rookies that could make an actual impact for our 2023 fantasy season. And we will do that right after this quick break. All right, we are back, and you are still listening to On The Wire. I am Adam Howe, joined by Kevin Hastings, and we are lucky to be joined by James Anderson of rotowire.com. James, we are going to get into a bunch of players that have not made their major league debut yet. We expect them. I expect them to make their debut at some point in 2023 because you've told me as much <laughs> on your top 400 list. But we'll get into some of those places. I want to pick your brain about like how do you come, not only some, how do you come up with your list, but like how do you, talk to me a little bit about your process as far as when you think these players are going to come up. Because there's a, a lot of debate of some of the guys that you have on there at 2024. Other people saying, no, I think they're going to make it push up. You've pushed them back another year for whatever reason. How do you come up with your, your quote, suggested MLB debut dates? Sure. Yeah. I, first off, I spend just way more time ordering the prospects than I do coming up with those ETAs. Like those are just so liable to be wrong, on, especially on guys where it's like 2025, 2026, that type of thing. Like I'm really not, it's not like I'm sitting there and really agonizing over what year to put down, but for the guys that are 2023, 2024, I'm looking at 40 man status. I'm looking at if they're on the 40 man or when do they have to be added to the 40 man? Uh, what was their most recent level? How much success did they have at that level? If it's a, if it's a hitter who really struggles with strikeouts or a pitcher who really struggles with walks. I'm going to just assume it's going to take them a little bit longer. If it's a catcher, it's probably going to take them a little bit longer. There's just, there's all kinds of stuff like team context, obviously. So there's just so much stuff that goes into it. And it's just me making an arbitrary decision on whether it's 2023 or 2024. But again, I mean, I'm not, this isn't a science or anything like that. I'm not spending days trying to get that ETA portion of the rankings. I'm really just more focused on trying to get the order of the prospects as, as right as I can. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I think a lot of people that are looking to get that edge, especially in a draft and hold, they're trying to pick up those prospects who could make an impact right away. They missed out on like Michael Harris example for last year. He wasn't drafted in very many <laughs> draft champions last year because just a good majority of people did not expect him to make the jump the way he did and obviously have the impact that he did right away and throughout the course of the season. And so I think a lot of people are just looking for that edge and be like, who's the guy that can make that kind of a jump that quickly? Kevin, how apt are you to be making those kind of jumps at players that you were the one that we talked about midseason before Harris came up. You were the one that suggested to me, like, hey, it looks like Michael Harris might come up. And I was like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> it doesn't seem like the logical move for the for Atlanta to make at this time. And lo and behold, like a week later, he was up. How quickly are you to jump on those kind of, those situations, whether it's in a draft and hold or an in-season? It's not going to be quickly enough for me to draft them in a draft and hold because I definitely was not on Michael Harris in the, the off season. It was how well he was playing and tearing it up at double a and the Braves outfielders at the time were most for the most part were struggling with, with Acuna DHing a lot at that time. So uh, I really don't, I don't like drafting guys like that, that, when I'm in agreement with most everybody else that they're probably not going to come up at least until late in the season. 
So it is more of an in-season thing. And I think that's, and it's not just redrafts. I think even sometimes we forget in our dynasty leagues to there there's value out there in season. And that's when you want to jump on it. You're getting these guys for free instead of waiting until the next year's draft for your dynasty league. So I think that's something to add is keep an eye on these guys in season. A lot of them I'm not going to be interested in even in 50 round draft and holds for 2023, but going forward and keeper in dynasty leagues, you can make a lot of improvements to your team just by who you're adding to your bench and, in season. I mentioned Michael Harris, James, and obviously he made the jump from double A right to the majors. We've seen a couple of instances lately. What should we be expecting out of these players? If a team, if a major league team is trusting enough of this player to make the jump them over triple A right to the majors, should we be trusting that prospect is going to produce right away? Uh, It's just, it's case by case. I didn't think that Michael Harris was like, I've been really high on Michael Harris for a long time for dynasty, but I wasn't out there winning him in all my leagues when he got the call. I, I did get Vaughn Grissom in a lot of my leagues after he got the call, but I don't think there was as much competition for him. You'll I think teams are really, we're seeing sort of an evolution of how teams go about bringing guys up. So uh, in recent seasons, the Pirates called up Leover Piguero from double A for a couple days and then sent him back down and they did they brought Rodolfo Castro up from double A in 2021 because he was already on the 40 man roster. I think in a lot of cases, they're just bringing these guys up for a very short kind of exposure to big league pitching. If Michael Harris had struggled in his first two weeks in the big leagues and it looked like he wasn't ready, I don't think he would have stayed up in the majors, but sometimes guys are ready sooner than we expect and they just take the job and run with it. So it's really got to be case by case. I don't think it's just this player was called up from double A to the majors, so he must be really good. Sometimes they might just be up for a weekend and then sent back down. So it's got to be case by case, I think. You have to assume, obviously, we hear about it all the time that there's teams that you're just trying to get as much out of their prospects as possible as far as time manipulation goes and holding on to them for longer years of control. And it's surprising to me, I guess, based on that bias or based on that narrative, that to see a guy like Michael Harris, who's so young, come up from double A and stay. Obviously, he earned it. He literally never struggled throughout the course of the season. And for fear of making this just this whole episode about Michael Harris, (laughs) I want to ask you about in your you're doing this for a long time. Have you noticed is that bias or is that narrative true, not true of as far as like teams wanting to certain teams wanting to hold players down longer for that extra control, other teams actually being more aggressive? Or is it like you said earlier with the other one, is it more of a case by case? It's just it's so complicated. Definitely case by case. You could look at the Orioles as a really good example of how it's not it's usually not just every organization stays the exact same when it comes to suppressing service time and stuff like that. It's usually not we're just going to do the exact same thing for the entirety of our run controlling this organization. The Orioles, I think they delayed Adley Rutschman's debut by about a year from just a how ready was he? Should he have been pushed? Like, I, I think he could have been up in 2021 and held his own, but the Orioles didn't want to press go 
on their contention window in 2021. And Adley Rutschman is the sort of, he's the sun that the rest of the organization is going to orbit around sure. for the next few years. So once they started the clock on Adley, then it's, this is now a team that will be aggressive. That This is a team that's looking to start winning. Like the Jackson Holiday pick, that's the last time that they want to be making that type of a pick, getting that type of a talent in the draft. I think that they really want to start pushing. And you saw Gunnar Henderson come up. Obviously, there's new rules that can make that beneficial to them, mm-hmm. made sense for them. But like Grayson Rodriguez was going to debut last year if he didn't get hurt. I think you're going to see Grace Rodriguez make the team out of spring training this year. So they go from a team that was suppressing their best prospect by about a year to now a team where it's kind of the opposite. And they're going to start leaning on their young guys. It's just so many different, like the Rays and the Guardians and the Pirates, like those super cheap teams. Their whole goal is to get as much production as possible on their pre-arbitration players. And even once they start getting to arbitration, they become players who are quote unquote too expensive. They're going to try to line that up with when those guys debut so that they're ready to help provide at the big league level. And if they don't, if they don't perform in a short period of time, they might get sent right back down. There's going to be situations where guys are just blocked like Kyle Tucker, he probably didn't debut uh, or didn't get a full-time job when he was ready because of how much talent was on that team. And Miguel Vargas, kind of the same thing with the Dodgers this past year. You saw the Tigers kind of rush Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green to the majors because their GM was on the hot seat and they had such little talent on the roster that made sense. It's just, it's there's so many factors that go into it and it changes yearly almost from team to team. So it's really complicated. Yeah, and the new rules, as you mentioned, they throw a whole new monkey wrench into it. I've ventured that Torkelson made the opening day roster just for that situation as well. If I'm not mistaken, the the player has to be on the opening day roster in order to qualify for that extra compensation. And so obviously you had Julio and you had Torkelson and you had Bobby Witt all on the opening day roster to give their teams that opportunity at that extra draft pick. Obviously, only one of those worked out, and that's just the way it is. But you have guys that are getting called up throughout the season that I guess are a little bit more surprising than others. And namely, I'm talking about the guys that get called up as as prospects that are not currently on the 40-man roster. How important do you think that is to keep an eye on as far as your expectations for a player to get called up when they're not on that roster? Yeah, it's extremely important to look at 40-man status, especially for like draft and hold leagues. It's, is the guy on the 40-man? And if the answer is no, then he better be just a really impressive prospect. Guy who, you know, like a, like an Andrew Painter type of guy with the Phillies, maybe as an example of he's not on the 40-man, but not being on the 40-man probably won't be what keeps him in the minors. But if you were talking about, say, like the 120th best prospect, they better be on the 40 man because it's pretty unlikely that they're going to just get the call on merit as someone who's not like a long-term building block for their team. If they're not on the 40 man roster. That's probably fair. That's probably a fair statement to almost anybody. If you're not a high prospect, less likely that you're going to get the call in general, at least into a role that's going to be impactful to your fantasy team, as opposed to the 120th guy. 
Well, this is all really great. Good kind of insight into a lot of this stuff, I'm sure, goes into how you make your rankings and then how we should be considering players when we're thinking that they're going to make the call into the major leagues. So let's talk about specifically some of these players. What I did is I made a long list based solely on James Yor top 400. I only took players with very few exceptions that are in currently in the top 100 who you estimate will make their debut sometime in 2023. Now, 2023 is a long season. They could debut in April. They could debut in September. So we'll talk about those individual situations as they come up. But things I want both you guys to be thinking about as we go over, we're going to go position by position here, is are, who on this list should we be paying attention to right now? It is draft season. Mostly we're seeing draft champions. We're seeing NFC 50s. We're seeing all these draft and holds. Yes, we're seeing these gladiators as well. But mostly in our context right here, I think these are mostly players that are going to be going in rounds 30 through 50 in a DC. And then who shouldn't be in I put together some updated ADP on here as well. How many drafts these guys have gone in as well for contextual contextualization. And then of all of these groupings, like who has legitimate opportunity of actually breaking camp? As you alluded to, we talked about a couple of guys that did it last year. And so let's go category by category, position by position here. Start, of course, with catcher because that's how all these lists always start. We have three guys in your top 100, James, that currently have catcher eligibility. We have Andy Rodriguez in Pittsburgh, Henry Davis also in Pittsburgh, and Austin Wells of the Yankees. Rodriguez has been drafted in all 29 completed draft champions. Wells has been drafted in 19 out of the 29. Davis has not been drafted at all. Are any of these guys worth drafting as your third catcher in a DC where expectations would move into a fantasy team's starting catcher position upon their debut? Not for me. I think Austin Wells and Henry Davis are more... We might see them up like I have them as 2023 because I think they're going to just get a taste at the end of the year. Like the, we saw a lot of catchers where that happened this past year, like Alvarez, Naylor, B. Those guys are all still rookie eligible. I think Henry Davis and Austin Wells will be rookie eligible next offseason, but I do think they'll debut at the end of 2023. And then Andy, I get why people are so excited. The statistical run last season was fantastic, but I don't know when he's up. It it could be May. It could be June. And at that point, I'm just not that interested in using a pick where he's going, like in the 400s on a catcher. And I generally approach catcher, like I might not do it the same way you guys do it. I'm, I'm not sure, but I really having two top 20 catchers. And if I don't love the duo I got, I'll probably grab a third. But if I take two, like I've had some drafts where I get two top seven catchers. And if I do that, I'm not even taking a third. I just don't, I think it like defeats the purpose of taking those guys that high. And the catchers that you get after Andy Rodriguez, they're just, they're terrible. So they might be net negatives <laughs> if you plug them in anyway. It's just, it's not my style to go after a catcher where Andy goes. I've pretty much got my catchers at that point, but I see the case for taking him. Like he's got a really high ceiling. He will be up if he stays healthy at some point, but I just, it's not for me. Yeah, I've been double tapping catchers at the tops of my early drafts in rounds, like anywhere between rounds three and five. I've been really focusing on trying to get either Varsho or MJ Melendez just due to, the, especially in a DC or a draft and hold, having the flexibility of having 
my third catcher be, start in my outfield. And then if one of my catchers gets hurt, moving him into the starting catcher position, it's easier said than done, obviously, because those top catchers, they go pretty quick and you've got to utilize a lot of your early draft capital in order to do it. But we got what seems to be a pretty deep catcher position right now. It's something we haven't really seen in a long time on the offensive side. And one of the one of the questions that, Kevin, I'm going to lean on you for this one first. One of the questions we got after putting out a tweet and talking to some people in the Pitcherless Discord is these rookie catchers that, as you talked about, James, are going to be either in starting positions. They're rookie eligible. They'll probably be in starting positions unless their team signs somebody to block them or move them along. Kevin, are what like what are you looking at as far as your catcher draft strategy? And are you looking at any of these guys later on in drafts because they are going a little bit further on? I'm talking about Francisco Alvarez, Logan Ohapi, and Bo Naylor in Cleveland. What preference of those three do you have if you are waiting? Yeah, I- Similar to James, I want two good catchers. Maybe not two top seven, but I like getting... I like the Sean Murphy, Cal Raleigh, Travis Darno. I like one of those three to be my second catcher. And then, as far as drafting the third, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. I did experiment with only drafting three catchers in a couple of draft and holds last season. And I had mixed results. It worked a spot or two, didn't in another, but get exactly where James is coming from. A zero can be better than a lot of these catchers that were taken pick 400 or later in these draft champions leagues. So it makes sense to me, but I have so far, I haven't done a lot of drafts yet. I've completed one draft champions. I've done the first half of another that one of our listener leagues, 12 team league, but in the draft and hold specifically, I did take Francisco Alvarez much later as a third catcher and someone that hopefully may make his way into my starting lineup at some point in the season. I've had my eye on Ohapi, and he's gone a little earlier than I expected in the couple of drafts that I've been in. So my, I guess my answer here is in draft and holds, I do grab in one of these guys as my third catcher with the expectation that they won't be in my starting lineup to, to start the season, but having one of them to either fall back on or add to my active roster as the season progresses. James, are any of these three guys, are you willing to have them as your C2? I, there, I guess there there was one draft I did, I think it was a Gladiator, where I got desperate enough that I was willing to have Naylor be my C2, Bo Naylor, and I couldn't even get him. Someone took him ahead of me, and I <laughs> had ended up with someone even worse. I've had Bo Naylor as my catcher three in one DC. I got him in the 23rd round, which I thought was too good of a price to pass up on, and... I didn't have as much high-end catching in that draft as I usually do. I had William Contreras and Danny Jansen as my first two, so I I was okay taking a third there. Uh, But I'm looking at where Bo Naylor's going in, like, the last five DCs. It's a really small window, min of 255, max of 266. And that's – I love Bo Naylor. I think he's going to just be fantasy gold once he sort of settles in against big league pitching, but – that's a little too high even for me and uh, Alvarez and Ohapi have been going a little too high for me as well. 
That's probably fair. With what happened with all the rookies last year, it's not too surprising to see everybody overreact or overcorrect, if you will, and going after even the catchers at, with rookie status. All right, let's go on to some first basemen that made the list. We've got in Tampa Bay, Kyle Manzardo. He is going, he's gone in all but one DC at a 563. And then, of course, we've got Matt Mervis of the Chicago Cubs. Gone in all 29 drafts at currently ADP of 290. He hasn't quite gotten to the ADP of over 200 after the AFL exploits, which is what everybody was joking about. And then Tyler Soderstrom only has UT only to start, but he's on, he lists as first base on your list, James. He's gone in just seven of the drafts. And then Nico Cavadas of Boston tore the back end of your top 100. He has not been drafted yet. So, First base seems to be in Chicago, at least in Chicago and Tampa after Tampa let go of G-Man Choi and the Cubs have a pretty clear opening at first base. Is there any chance in Tampa that Manzardo makes the jump to take it in Tampa? And then on the flip side in Chicago, is there any chance that the Cubs block Matt Mervis by signing an actual free agent? Let me tackle Mervis first, I think, because he's probably the most relevant for 2023 of these four. I'm really comfortable taking Mervis as a, like my utility player. Certainly I'm comfortable taking him if he's a bench player for me, but I just, I'm really confident that he's going to play and play enough that you look at the other corner infielders that are going in that range. I just don't really see why Mervis isn't worth a shot. And I think what you're seeing there was a pinnacle of his value, say, three weeks ago, where he was going around pick 200, early 200s. But I think there there's there was enough backlash to that he's now kind of settled in as more mid 200, late 200s. So I think the, the price is right on Mervis right now. I just don't see why they would bring in. I think they'd have to bring in two guys, honestly, to block him because you got DH, you got first base there. So I just, maybe he scuffles enough that he's out of a job by June. That's your worst case scenario is that he just kind of loses a job, but I'm not worried about him being blocked entering the season. As for Manzardo, when we see players debut sooner than we're expecting or perform better than we're expecting, it's usually a player of Manzardo's caliber. I wouldn't rule anything out with him, but this is the Rays. They do have Isaac Paredes and Jonathan Aranda. Are, they're going to get work at first base. I think Manzardo should be drafted in these DCs. I haven't done it yet just because I'm not, I have no idea when he's going to be up. It might not be till July with it being the Rays. It might not even be till September. Like Manzardo could still be prospect eligible next year. So Mervis to me, I think he's in the opening day lineup. Manzardo could really debut like anywhere from May, June till the end of the season. And he's the best first base prospect in the game to me. So I get the excitement, but I'm kind of waiting till till 2024 probably with Manzardo and redraft leagues. And of course, Manzaro's not, as we talked about earlier with the 40 man, he's not currently on their 40 man roster. And so that's going to, that's another wrench to put in there. Kevin, have you, you've got a couple of drafts get past this point. Have you found yourself with Matt Mervis on any of them? And are you opposed to the situation? Or are you on the same kind of boat that James is talking about? Where you're pretty confident he's going to be starting. No, I agree. And I haven't picked him in a draft yet. I, I have been 
intrigued and, and looking at him at the point that he has been picked in, in in several drafts. So yeah, I'm on the same page. I think he probably is their opening day first baseman and pick 290. I think that's reasonable. It just hasn't ended up. I kind of like James said earlier. I like if I like getting one of the top first basemen. And let's face it, I'm a homer. I've been drafting a lot of Vinny Pasquantino. <laughs> right place. Which is why I am interested in Manzardo. Love the plate discipline. Love the strikeout rate. Love the walk rate with the power. I can see myself. I'm really careful not to have too many stashes in these draft and holds. That it, 50 rounds sounds like a lot, but, but by the end of the season, we wish we had 75. So I'm careful about having too many stashes but going in the late 500s mid to late 500s right now i could see myself ended up with monzardo on a draft and hold team all right i mentioned that monzardo not on the 40 man actually none of these four guys are on their team's 40 man roster including matt mervis so teams will have especially the cubs with everybody pretty confident he will make the opening day roster they're gonna have some decisions to make going down the list a little bit james tyler Soderstrom. what should we be expecting as far as his role in oakland goes when he does make the call for the ace yeah i think he's their first baseman of the future melissa locker who does an amazing job covering the a's for the athletic i had her on the show almost a year ago and she was saying that even back then i think that the a's you know, Oakland and the Nationals probably have the two worst 40-man rosters in baseball. <laughs> I think they're going to rush Soderstrom and Zach Geloff up this year. I don't know. It's just I think they're both going to be in the big leagues before they should be. They're going to struggle. There might be some sort of post-hype window to draft a guy like Soderstrom. I could see us going into next offseason with him putting up like really bad numbers in the majors and people being kind of down on him. But I do think long-term he's going to be good enough to be kind of their cleanup hitter, their number three hitter or something like that. And their first baseman of the future. But I don't think he's going to be ready to have success in the majors in 2023. So he, even if they rush him or whatnot, could you see him being the kind like following the Corp and Carroll and the situation where he gets called up with just enough where he doesn't lose rookie eligibility for next year? It might happen that way. That wouldn't necessarily be rushing him. Sure, I could see them. I could see them rushing him, like in having him up in June or something, gotcha. and that I think that would be a mistake. But they might just be looking at their roster, and just being like, we don't. There's nobody here that we want to give that bat space. So let's just bring up our and, and get off, you know? Oakland is the whole enigma in general. Whether they're going to be in Oakland, whether they are going to actually compete, if <laughs> with anything, I think. We could see Oakland kind of echo what happened with Baltimore a couple of years ago when the Fangraphs put out their percentages of making the playoffs. We could see that with o Oakland's percentages going into next year, but we'll see what their final roster looks like. All right, let's go on to second base here. We got Connor Norby in Baltimore, 25th on your list, James, gone in all but five of the DCs that have completed. And then Edward Julian, 624 ADP, gone in all, again, all, all but five of these DCs that have completed. And then added in here, Curtis Mead, though he is three third base eligible, you expect him to come up as a second baseman or at least gain second base eligibility when he comes up. Gone in all but four of these drafts. Kevin, as we look at some of these names and some of these 
some of these players on some of these teams. Do you have a good sense of whether or not you'd be saving money for a quote Fabapalooza? Are you be interested in waiting until they come up at a certain point in the season and spending good amount of fab on these guys, especially at the second base position? Or are these Again, like you usually say, <laughs> probably going to go for a little bit more than you're willing to spend. What's your take on these guys? Yeah, I want to see how things are going this season, especially in a Fab League scenario, of course, uh, with their ADP. We're not drafting them in those leagues. But yeah, in spite of my typical week to week, yeah, I'll have my bids in, but I'm not going to get them. I do budget for one player at some point in the season to, to go bigger on than I normally do. And yeah, in, any of these guys, if they're performing exceptionally well in, in the minors and get the call and it appears that they're going to get a run at every day at bats, that that's always a huge thing. Then yeah, they, they, they'd be candidates for be taking them in that spot. James, when these guys come up, when they finally, whether they come up in April, they come up in September, whatever, what kind of role do you foresee them having upon their debut with their major league teams? I think all three are the caliber of prospect that you bring up to play. Norby's not getting the call to be their bench infielder. And same goes for Mead and probably Julian. One thing to note with Mead, I have ended up with him in uh, a couple of DCs. I think the price is very fair i think he's basically ready to hit big league pitching but at the end of last season he was dealing with an elbow strain and he got an injection and still hasn't returned to action so i don't think we're 100 percent out of the woods with mead from a health standpoint like that could be the type of thing that leads to position player tommy john surgery so there is there's health risk with mead but If he's just fully healthy entering spring training, I think he's someone that'll spend more time in the majors than the minors next year. And he's just, he's kind of a different caliber of hitter of prospect than some of the other guys that are playing like the, just kind of looking at their depth chart. He's basically an upgrade over, over half these guys, even though he's not bringing much to the table defensively. So I like Mead. Norby is a really good prospect. He's their second baseman of the future, in my opinion. But it is pretty crowded, and it's crowded especially kind of in the short term. I don't know if they want to keep going with Ramon Urias for a bit longer. You also have Joseph or Joey Ortiz on the 40-man. You have Jordan Westford, who's basically big league ready. These guys all kind of play the same spots. Are they going to go with Jorge Mateo for a full season again? It's just there's a lot of pieces there in the middle infield in Baltimore. I'm just not sure when they give Norby the keys to everyday playing time. So I haven't been ending up with him. And then Julian, I just it's kind of a similar thing. Like the Twins have a lot of these sort of younger offense first players at the positions that he can play. Julian's kind of mead where it's all about the bat. Like he's not going to provide defensive value really. That might delay his arrival a little bit, but I do think redraft players will be really interested in all three of these guys. Zardo, though, you mentioned Fabapalooza. I think Fabapalooza and Manzardo seem kind of destined for each other sometime this summer. It'll be. I, I want to. I want to get back to one of those weekends where you had three solid prospects all come up in the same week. And so we can have a true Fabapalooza and you have to figure out exactly who it is you want to spend all your money on. 
I don't remember exactly who it was, it was a couple of years ago. And I ended up, I think I ended up with Oscar Mercado instead of the top guys that were there. It seemed like a good deal at the time, but that's neither here nor there. Like I mentioned, we put this out on Twitter and talked to some people on Pitcherless Discord. And of course, we got more questions when we said that you were going to be our guest, James, than <laughs> I think than any other time. So I got a couple of would you rathers people want to know about. And so I'm going to give one to James and one to Kevin. Kevin, let's start here with, uh, we talked a lot about Connor Norby here. As James said, he's the second baseman of the future for Baltimore. Who, in, in based on everything that James just said, who would you rather have for 2023, Connor Norby or Brian Rocchio? That's tough. I think I'd roll with Norby. I think he probably gets the call first. And so that's where I would go there. Yeah, I think I'd go with Norby. I would guess he gets called up before Rocchio. And if you're trying to get as many plate appearances as possible, obviously that's the way you're going to lean with a lot of these guys. James, on the second one, we got Spencer Steer versus Edward Julian. Which one provides more fantasy value this coming season? I got to go with Steer. He probably opens the year as an everyday player. Great home park, obviously. Julian, who knows when we see him? Like Steer could have twice as many plate appearances as Julian. I definitely think Julian is the better hitter now and long term. Uh, but Steer, tough to pass up on the plate appearances there in that home park. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. When it comes down to these guys, especially in these redraft leagues and these draft champions, it is all about appearances. How many counting stats can you accrue through the amount of times that you can get to the plate? All right, let's move on across across second base over to shortstop. Got some shortstop already, probably not probably already the deepest position in fantasy. Looking has a possibility of staying that way for years to come with Jordan Lawler, Ellie De La Cruz, Anthony Volpe. Brian Rocchio and Mason Wynn and Zach Nito all within the top 50 of your prospect rankings, James, and all expected to make their debut at some point in 2023. All of these guys have been drafted in in at least seven of these draft champions with Lawler, De La Cruz, and Volpe going in at least 26 of them. Rocchio and Wynn have gone in seven out of the 29. And then Zach Nito has yet to be drafted. So, James, let me start with Zach Nito because we did have a specific question about him. He has not been drafted at all in any of these draft champions. Do you expect him to have any kind of impact on with the Angels in 2023? If it was any other team, I would say no. But the Angels, they not only fast-track guys, like they're in this sort of perpetual, we have to win now because we have Mike Trout mode and so not only are they do they fast track their prospects but they specifically draft college players that they think they can fast track Neto's really advanced really good hitter performed well in his debut I expect them to rush him kind of along the same lines as the A's with Soderstrom and Geloff but uh, Neto's got such a good hit tool that he might be able to hold his own initially I just don't think there's going to be much category juice it might be a thing where you want to buy back in in 2024 on Neto assuming he doesn't really set the world on fire this year but it's just more about him being on the Angels and then just rushing everyone yeah we've talked a lot about and a lot of people have Gio Shella currently slotted in to be the starting shortstop for the Angels I don't think 
most of us expect that to be the case, at least the majority of the season due to other factors. But it would be it'd be neat to see Neno make his way up and take that over from him as they probably are forced to move Gio around the diamond to different situations. With We're talking about, you actually, is there, and just reading your notes here, <laughs> I'm going to skip ahead and just say, is there anybody else that's not on this list that at this position that you'd be expecting to draft in a DC? Maybe just because they're not on the top 100 doesn't mean they're not draftable. Yeah, you know, obviously the rankings we're citing here, that was from my big end of season update. But Joey Ortiz with the Orioles, who was in the 100 to 150 range on that update, he will be in my top 100 on the next update as I become more and more comfortable with the idea of him possibly being an everyday player. And obviously he's close to the majors, is on the 40-man. Uh, it's just a matter of when the Orioles decide that they want to decrease Jorge Mateo's role. Mateo's a great story, especially for fantasy with the stolen bases, and he's a really good defender. I just don't see a team that's serious about trying to make a push this year, sticking with that bad of a hitter as an everyday player. Maybe it doesn't mean that it's Ortiz's job, though. It could be Westberg who gets the benefit there, but I've been ending up with Ortiz basically with my final pick of DCs. There was a point where I accounted for two of the three times he'd been taken in draft champions, but I have been hearing that his price is increasing, or he's been going like in the 42nd round. I think I saw Mike Curlin mention. So I'm not that high on Ortiz. Like I'm not taking him unless it's one of my final picks, but. He's a nice sleeper uh, for a lot of formats. Yeah, at the, as we're putting together the notes for this show, I was going through your notes, Sajori Ortiz. You added him to the outline here. And then I went ahead and grabbed him in my DC after that and then got some flack <laughs> from Mike Curland for it after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So Kevin, Jay touched on it with the situation in Baltimore with all these middle infielders coming up, plus obviously the guys they already have on the roster. Um, is this situation that they have brewing with the Orioles making you more or less interested in bring, in drafting a Jorge Mateo, especially if you are looking for the Tim repeat in that steals category that we saw, whether he attributes to anything else, as James alluded to, is he's going to be in question with that with that bat in his hands. But are you thinking he'll go? He might go the same way as like a Jonathan VR, kind of just get, gets forgotten about, or becomes more of a super utility player who still finds his way into everyday playing time and gains eligibility elsewhere, regains outfield eligibility, moves a second, third, shortstop, wherever he needs to go. What's your take on Mateo's situation based on what Baltimore has going on? Yeah, it's intriguing. I think we're about five years away from him going the way of VR. He's still 27 years old, Jorge Mateo. And Steamer, at least, and in, in their initial projections for the 2023 season, buys the 13 home runs he put up. They have him projected for 12 home runs in 2023. And if you're getting double-digit home runs and 30 stolen bases from Mateo, and they even like his batting average bumping up a little bit, of course, that's taken the 247 he hit in 2021 into account to, to give him a little bump over his 2022 numbers, but he's going to latch on somewhere. 
and play for somebody, even if it's not Baltimore. I think he'll be in Baltimore's lineup unless they trade him. He is arbitration eligible beginning this season. So three more years of team control, but at inflated price of what he's been paid in the past, he's going to be in somebody's lineup. And if you're willing to take the hit in batting average and in the run and RBI categories or him being at the bottom of a lineup, that double digit home runs coming with those 30 stolen bases makes him really intriguing. Yeah. It's in this new environment. Who's to say what's going to happen with stolen bases next year. Uh, and so anybody who puts up any kind of threat is going to be intriguing in that category for sure. Uh, of the of all these guys on this list, James, who do you expect to get the most plate appearances? And we're talking your number three overall prospect, Jordan Lawler, all the way down to, we talked about Zach Neto go at 49. Who gets more plate appearances by the end of the season? Yeah, I would fade or I would take the under probably on plate appearances for all these guys. I It's really surprising to me, honestly, how high... Anthony Volpe and Ellie De La Cruz are going in D.C. I just don't think there's any guarantee at all that we see either De La Cruz or Volpe in the majors in the first half of the season. I guess I'll say Volpe has the most PAs, obviously got to AAA last year, but Oswald Peraza is pretty good and probably a better defender than Volpe. Do they trade Glaber Torres sometime this offseason? I don't know. There's going to have to be something's got to give there, but I just, I see enough reasons to kind of fade the rest of these guys from a playing time standpoint in 2023 that I think will be probably the best bet for the most played appearances, but I wouldn't touch him inside the top 400, which is where he's going right now. Yeah. I think Dilla Cruz, as good as he is, I, he's the most surprising to me as far as, as you mentioned, where he's going in these drafts at ADP of 449 being drafted in 100, being drafted in 100% of these DCs is not so surprising, but to see him in the top right. 450, uh, granted, I understand it's in Cincinnati and you love to see that. I love to see any bat in that situation, but we'll get to another one of his teammates later on not being drafted at all going into these DCs at third base. So yeah, I, I'm not seeing the Reds being very aggressive personally with their top prospects and gain in losing that control, at least not in the first half of the season. We'll see how that goes. That there turns Just out. One one quick note there. I had Chris Blessing from Baseball HQ on my podcast a few weeks ago, and he he scouted De La Cruz several times this past year, and he his theory is De La Cruz would be sent back to Double A on pretty much any other team, but he thinks the Reds might be dumb enough to push <laughs> De La Cruz to the majors in line with where his ADP is. But Chris, who's a really good evaluator, he's pretty convinced that De La Cruz would struggle mightily against even AAA pitching early this season. So that's where I'm coming from there. At the same time, a lot of the same concerns I have with Eli De La Cruz I had with Fernando Tatis Jr. before he debuted. So when we're talking about someone who's this physically talented, I'm not saying like he's definitely going to bust this year or he or there's no way he could provide value at 449 but I just think there are it's much more likely 
that he really doesn't do a ton in the majors in 2023. Sure. All right. Of these guys, we see it all the time. As an old adage goes, there's no such thing as a second base prospect. It's just shortstops who move to second base or even third base in some situations. Are any of these guys destined to be moving off of the position in 2023 after they debut? It's a good crop of shortstops here defensively. I think Volpe is probably the worst defender of the, of, what are we talking about, like seven guys here? Haller is definitely sticking it short. De La Cruz is, is going to stick it short. I know people reference all the shortstop prospects the Reds have. Almost all those guys aren't going to stick at shortstop. <laughs> Cruz, I think, is the most likely probably of all of them to stick at shortstop. So I think he, def- by default, will stick there. Rokio, I think he's a shortstop. And it's just a matter of, I think, Ahmed Rosario and Andres Jimenez, they are really solid young players that I think the Guardians are going to see if they can kind of repeat what they did last year. But I do think Rokio is a shortstop. Mason Wynn's definitely a shortstop. He's the best defender of all these guys. Neto was drafted to be their shortstop of the future. Ortiz was always seen as a glove first guy until this past year. So he's a shortstop too. We're going to get to one of the bigger names, at least draft-wise, in on your list here at third base. Before we do that, Kevin, is there anybody in this shortstop grouping that kind of fits that mold that I'm about to talk about with Jordan Walker, where, hey, they're too too good of a talent. I know I only have so many stashes that I'm going to have on my DCs that you're still going to take that chance on with the expectation that they, you know, with the hope that they get called up early and they can actually make a difference. Yeah, possibly. The problem here is team context for a couple of these guys. Ellie De La Cruz... In Cincinnati, if they're not competing, it seems to me they want him either they want him on an opening day roster. The what we were talking about earlier for that manipulation to to get draft pick compensation if they finish well in rookie of the year voting. So if he's not going to be on the 2023 opening day roster, they'll want him to have rookie eligibility in 2024, assuming they're not going to be a competitive team. That I think many of us are of that belief for 2023 so that makes it interesting for him i know there's what arizona's got going on with their pitching staff and their lineups better than it has been in the past but with the division they're in arizona's probably in that same spot so the same thing comes to mind for jordan lawler here so i think if i'm taking a shot it's with volpe although yeah, oh no. Inside the top 400 is still early for me at that point. But if he would drop to his max pick much later, a few rounds later, maybe that if I don't have a, a stash or two yet at that point in the draft. Uh, but for the most part, you know, these guys are all going. Uh, I'd rather take the shot on Neto, I think, who who isn't being drafted so far in, in DCs when I get him with the last pick rather than having to use a top we're talking in before round 40 for these guys yeah i'm not interested the guys going earlier all right let's move on to third base as i mentioned jordan walker your fourth ranked prospect james going at adp of 255 of course being drafted in all 29 of these dcs followed by curtis mead who again has that third base eligibility and zach galoff over in oakland ranked 61 on your list, only been drafted in five of these drafts. And then Christian Encarnacion Strand, hopefully I got that full name right there. He's not been drafted at all, and he was the one I was alluding to earlier in Cincinnati at third base. So 
again, Walker, third base eligible right now. We expect him to gain outfield eligibility rather quickly as he's been playing the position both in the at the end of the season last year and in the AFL. What's your like? He's the earliest. He's going the earliest of all these guys we're talking about on the positional side. So drafters seem to be confident enough that he'll have a big impact in 2023. How confident are you that he actually breaks camp in St. Louis? And what's the latest you see him going in everyday role for the Cardinals? I love Jordan Walker. I just don't love this ADP, given what we currently know. He could win a job in spring training. Like He could definitely break camp as an everyday player for them. But there's just so many obstacles to that happening in my opinion i like they they just have all these guys like they basically when are they gonna pull the plug on dylan carlson they are much higher on dylan carlson than i think any of us are they they didn't trade for juan soto this past trade deadline because Carlson would have had to bend in the deal, and then they didn't have they didn't have a center fielder if they traded Carlson. That's the reason they didn't do that. And so, do they now think like Lars Newbar is a good enough center fielder to demote Carlson from playing time? Is if Tyler O'Neill is healthy and Lars Newbar is healthy, I don't know exactly where. Walker plays? Do they want to get Juan Yapez and Nolan or Nolan Gorman consistent run at DH? Just a lot of moving pieces here, and the Cardinals are high on all these guys, right? I think Walker could win a job in spring training if he just really outperforms Dylan Carlson this spring. Maybe they'd sacrifice some defense to, to get Walker's bat in the lineup right away, but to me, this current ADP is more where I would feel comfortable taking him in late March, if he's having a really good spring and trending towards that type of role, I think this cost right now is sort of baking in that he will win that job. And I don't think that's a guarantee at all. And I don't I don't think it's a guarantee that he would perform well in his first days of majors either. He's a really good prospect, but he's still super young. He hasn't played a triple A. He's a big guy. He's got a longish swing. I just, I don't really like the ADP on Walker right now. And obviously he's good enough to, to support or to blow past that in terms of earned value, but I just, I don't like the cost. I could see this cost being, and I've, I think I have two teams with some exposure on, on Jordan Walker up in my three so far, pretty much just not the gladiators and felt a lot more comfortable drafting him in my fab league than I did in the DC. I still pulled the trigger in the DC, but I felt a lot more comfortable doing it in that fab league. And it's also a 12 teamer compared to the 15 teamer. I'm willing to make a little bit more of a concession and in risk taking in those shallower formats than in a 15 teamer, where obviously the replacement value is far and few between come mid season. We talked a lot about these guys. So I'm just going to get Get quick take on this. Curtis Mead versus Kyle Manzardo. Who finds themselves with regular at-bats in Tampa first? I'm more confident, I think, that when Manzardo gets the call, he's immediately treated like a true everyday player. But I think Mead beats him to the majors by a month, if not more. 
really similar to when I like when Taylor Tyler Walls was coming up and obviously Wander Franco was coming up. We were saying in the preseason that Walls would get up there first and he might actually get more plate appearances than Franco in that season. I think that did happen. It doesn't mean that obviously Walls is the <laughs> better better prospect or the better hitter. And the same could probably it sounds like the same could be said about Meade versus Manzardo in Tampa. Kevin, do you have any concerns about hitting prospects in Tampa gaining everyday playing time or immediately getting put into more of a platoon situation as we've seen with a lot of the guys? No, not really. I think we can usually tell which way they're going to go with a guy. And it's interesting. We automatically, I think many of us just assume everybody in Tampa is going to be a platoon. And it's not the case. You have four or five guys that play every day, like most teams. They just, because they were one of the first to start playing the matchup game and they got the notoriety from what they do on the pitching side. And we know they do some of the same type of matchup plays with their hitters. They've got that, that stigma, but they, they have half of their lineup or more typically everyday guys. Like James was saying, Manzardo, I'm confident when he gets called up, it's because they want him to be in the everyday lineup. So specifically for him, I wouldn't have the worry. Some other guys, it just depends. Like most teams, if it's an outfielder, and then I start to take a look at who else is still there at the time and what's going on. But in general, I think that's probably overblown a little bit. I appreciate the opportunity for the segue here as we move into the outfield position, Kevin. So way to set me up on that one. We have added Jordan Walker to this list as he will gain outfield eligibility. Of course, as we mentioned, he has third base eligibility going into the season, followed by Jackson Chorio in Milwaukee. Colton Kowser in Baltimore, another Baltimore prospect here in the top portions of your rankings, 15 overall, been drafted in 21 out of the 29 drafts, followed by Aaron Zavala in Texas, has not been drafted yet. Brennan Davis for the Cubs, drafted in just about all of these drafts. George Valera in Cleveland, same thing. Sal, Sal Frelick in Milwaukee, again, also been drafted in, actually, he's the first one on this list who's been drafted in all 29 drafts so far, followed by Dustin Harris in Texas, Drafted in just 16. Pedro Leon in Houston, been drafted in 23 out of 29. And then Oscar Colas in for the White Sox, drafted in all 29 drafts so far. Again, going to start off here, James, with a mailbag question specifically about Dustin Harris in Texas. Like I mentioned, he's only been drafted in 16 out of these 29 drafts that have been completed. He's 72 on your overall prospect list. What kind of impact should we be expecting? List him as being as debuting in 2023, but what should we be expecting as far as his actual impact, especially on the fantasy side for the season? It's just it's very much up in the air to me. I he's not really a target. I expect him to debut, like you said, but. I would take the under, say, 250 plate appearances for Harris in the big leagues. And it's it's a tough spot for him because I think he fits best at first base slash DH. And so with Nathaniel Lowe having the year that he had, that's definitely every day at bats at one of those spots spoken for. And Harris isn't a great defensive outfielder. And obviously there's a high bar to clear offensively if he's playing in left field or right field. And I just think he needs more time in the upper levels of the minors. So I'm just really not sure when he's up. 
and I'm not confident enough in him getting enough playing time to be worth a pick in these DCs. And the other thing is people are probably looking at his minor league stolen base totals and kind of dreaming of five category upside or at least power speed. He's not that much of a runner, not to the point where I would project him to be an impact threat on the bases in the majors. I would just keep that in mind. Kind of same goes for Edward Julian, who we were speaking about earlier. With a decent amount of these guys, you, you sort of have to dig a little deeper than just how many bases they stole in the minors before expecting that to carry over to the majors. Yeah, that's fair. I guess it also just reiterates the fact that just because they're on this list and you list them as expected to be <laughs> debuting in 2023 doesn't mean that they will debut early in the season or at least given up debut in a situation where they're going to get a starting role and be able to get up to those plate appearances that are going to help you add up all those counting stats of this list personally in my dc i i was able to draft two of them i got george valera in cleveland and then pedro leon with my round 49 pick and leon personally was just all about age and where we were in the draft obviously has not made his debut yet i fully expect him to make his debut in 2023 as well if for no other reason besides the fact that he's a top 100 prospect but what else has he got to do in the minors? So that was kind of my logic there. Kevin, is there any anybody on this list that you have or would be targeting in those later rounds to fill in your outfield depth on your DCs? I haven't yet, but I am, I do have more interest in Sal Freilich now with Hunter Renfro out of Milwaukee. It just opens up another spot, and they probably had a, an outfield spot already. I think they will give Garrett Mitchell some, some more steady playing time there to see what he can do. But he's a guy going after pick 500 in some of these drafts that I, and actually now that I'm thinking about it, I may have grabbed him. I think I did in the draft champions. I say, I haven't grabbed any of these guys yet. I think I actually did grab him. Yeah. He's definitely somebody I'm interested in. If you can get him after pick 500 or so. Yeah, James, the Kevin mentioned with the dumping of Hunter Renfro in Milwaukee, and you're a Milwaukee guy as well, if I'm not mistaken. Besides Sal Frelick, is there an opportunity to kind of move somebody higher on this list like Jackson Churio up into Milwaukee a little bit faster? Do you see him his debut as being a late season call up to prep for everyday playing time in 2024? Or do you think that this opening causes them to push him a little bit further? The Renfro trade three names to really focus on are Frelick and then Garrett Mitchell and Asturio Ruiz. Churio is the best prospect of the bunch, but mm-hmm. there's just, I would be shocked if he was up before the Carroll Henderson timeline from this past year. And even for him to make that timeline, he really needs to kind of dominate at double A and then have success at AAA as well. Churio, just not a name at all for 2023, and the drafting public agrees. I don't like he hasn't been taken yet, like you said. But I love Frelick after the Renfro trade. I haven't gotten him yet, but I, he's definitely a target for me from here on out. I think he's the best of those three. Ruiz has obviously a ridiculous ceiling from a stolen base standpoint, so I think he's a worthwhile flyer. And Mitchell's just going higher than I think he should. Uh, I would be okay with him if he was going mid to late 400s, but you know people are taking him as a starting outfielder in some cases for fantasy, which I would not recommend <laughs> given the strikeout issues he showed last year. 
Outfield is tough, man. Out, especially in the 15 teamers, outfield is tough this year as it's shown itself so far. I'll talk about Sal Frelick. He is one of the two guys on this list that have been drafted in 100% of these DCs so far. Also on that list, Oscar Colos of the White Sox. Between these two guys, do you see either one of them breaking camp and providing production from the jump? It's kind of funny because they are the exact opposite in terms of just what they're doing at the plate. Frelick has got maybe a 70-grade hit tool, super fast, play any of the outfield spots, good defender. Colas is just massive, huge power, bad swing decisions. The White Sox just seem intent on fast-tracking him. I think they could both win a job out of camp. I think they'll both be given a chance to win a job out of camp. And Rick Hahn has even said as much with regard to Colas in right field. But I think Frelick is probably going to look like one of the Brewers' two or three best outfielders in spring training. It would make sense. If he's going to be up early, they might as well just have him up on opening day. So I I could see both of them winning a job in spring training. Is the... Kevin, is the playing time, I mean, you talked about South Relic being a target of yours as well, but is the playing time for Oscar Colas something that is enough of an interest for you to go after him in these types of drafts as well? Or do you not see the production being worth it? It's interesting to start taking a look. I think their, their ADP for Colas and Freilich is nearly identical, and I'd much rather have Freilich I did go back and look, and I did take him in the draft champions. I mentioned, like in post pick 500, I got him at 503. So that's right where I'm starting to look at him there. But yeah, I prefer him over Colas, although at the current cost. But I'd be interested in keeping an eye on Colas as well, for sure. All right. A lot of outfielders on this list, a lot of them being drafted as well. Only Zavala and Chorio not been drafted at all so far. Is there anybody that we haven't talked about, James, that you think has a chance to make an impact from the jump? I think Colton Kowser is a dark horse. As I mentioned earlier in the show, Baltimore is like they want to make the playoffs this year. Um, we'll see how their depth chart is shaking out this spring, but I believe they like Cow- they like the idea of Kowser being their center fielder of the future. And if he's looking ready in spring training or maybe even just like April, May, I could see him being up for a good chunk of the year. I think of the non, I'm not really in on Colas, but other than Frelick, I would expect Hauser to be my most rostered player of these guys after draft season. Man, that Baltimore, at least their lineup, is going to look very different <laughs> if all these things come to fruition by the All-Star break with all the guys that are on these lists and expected to make their debut and in, in such a way where they actually are gaining at least close to everyday playing time at their positions. So fun situation to keep your eye on for 2023. All right, last category, of course, it's our pitching category. I'm not, we'll talk about it, but I did not try to specify between starters and relievers because you never know how many of these guys will debut in those particular roles. Quickly go through the list, though, that we're considering here. Andrew Painter of Philadelphia, Grayson Rodriguez of Baltimore, Yuri Perez in Miami, Ricky Titterman in Toronto, Kyle Harrison in San Francisco, Taj Bradley in Tampa Bay, followed by Gavin Williams in Cleveland, Gavin Stone for the Dodgers, Brandon Fat 
in Arizona, Tanner Beebe in Cleveland, Bobby Miller for the Dodgers, Robert Gasser in Milwaukee, Brian Mata in Boston, and Jack Leiter in Texas. So long list here of expected debuts. Of course, we see a lot of pitching debuts every season to varying degrees. And these are just guys that are in the top 120 or 130 of your list, James. So I went a little bit beyond 100 here for the pitchers just to get a good good sense of some of these these guys that are coming up. A lot of questions regarding pitchers here. So let's get into one of them real quick before getting into some other specifics. What I mean, let's talk. Let's start at the top. Andrew Painter, Philadelphia. You mentioned him earlier in the show. Seventeenth overall on your rankings, going in all twenty nine drafts at ADP of four fourteen. How he's so young and he's so low in, in his levels. How many starts or innings can we realistically expect at the major league level from a twenty year old Andrew Painter on a Philadelphia team that's obviously has aspirations of returning to the World Series in 2023. Yeah, I've definitely heard a lot of people kind of trying to get drafters to pump the brakes on Painter, and they're always going to cite his age, right? Like he's 19, he turns 20 in April. But I would just like to know what anyone thinks he still needs to improve upon. To to me, I, I see a guy who's ready right now to have success in the majors that I think him breaking camp in the rotation is a long shot, but I think it's a greater than 0% chance. And I know that they definitely want to return to the go deep in the postseason again, but I think that's almost an argument for him being up sooner than later, because after Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, there's a ton of question marks in that rotation to me. And I think Painter might look like their third best starting pitcher at least sometime this summer. So I get the sort of hesitancy by just looking at his age, looking at how many starts he's made in the upper levels. But I think sometimes you just see really special players come along who sort of defy that type of stuff. And Painter... I think he's the best pitching prospect in the game, really close between him and Grayson. But the fact that I think they, their big league innings this year, I think they're going to actually be closer than people expect. And I think Painter's just a tiny bit better. It's might just not pan out at all. Taking, you know, taking a prep righty who's this young, like so much can and, and often does go wrong, but outside the top 400, I think the upside justifies it. Kevin, what's your take on Painter and those like him as far as like your draft strategy? Are you more apt to go after the this highest end pitching prospect, regardless of age, regardless of if they're going to start or not in the beginning of the season, versus a hitter where you're not always 100% sure what kind of playing time they're going to get when Painter's up, where he's going to be? Uh, how do you balance that when you're considering those different types of prospects? No, I think for redraft leagues, draft champions, and fab alike, I'd rather take a shot on a pitcher because I think that teams need them. (laughs) Nobody has enough starting pitching. And as James said, the Phillies really could use a guy like Painter. And across the three levels, he threw over 100 innings last year. I think that's a big thing. So maybe we're expecting... 
120, 130 this year, 130 innings total. So they do give him a handful of starts at double A or triple A to start the season. We'd still be looking at another hundred innings of him going forward once we're able to get him in our lineups. I think that's something to really take into consideration is how many innings they had last season. And when someone like Painter, still 19 years old, will be 20 as the season starts, to have had over 100 innings this past season is huge for me. All right, we'll go with somebody at the top who's been drafted in every single league, it's in Painter, and go down the list to somebody who has not been drafted at all, Robert Gasser in Milwaukee. He's 110 on your list, James, has not been drafted yet. Can we expect him to be... What kind of impact do you see him making in 2023? Obviously, you've expected him to make his debut, but what kind of impact should he have? Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot about that in the coming months are the brewers going to trade one of their best starting pitchers before opening day i definitely wouldn't rule it out i wouldn't do it if i were them but (laughs) they i wouldn't have done a lot of things they've done (laughs) i if they trade a guy like burns or eric lauer or something like that all of a sudden what was once their biggest strength the depth of their rotation now becomes a little bit of a liability. Freddy Peralta is how many innings are you going to get from him? Aaron Ashby, I'm a huge believer in Ashby. Like I, I really think he's going to become a great starting pitcher, but he's not a sure thing. And Adrian Hauser, I think, has proven he doesn't belong in a contending team's rotation. So it could be Gosser time sooner than later if they make a trade. But if they keep all these guys, I think – it's more of kind of they go the sort of old the, the Brewers route of breaking these guys in out of the bullpen. That's what they did with Burns and Woodruff yeah, and Ashby. So I think if everything goes perfectly, Gosser will follow that same path and pitch plenty in the majors this year, but maybe not be given a full-time starter's job until 2024. We got a couple of guys on this list on multiple teams. Kevin, let's focus on the Dodgers players here. We had, of course, we had Russell Armchair Roto on the show a couple of weeks ago. He really put a spotlight on Gavin Stone and his interest in him as a guy he could provide significant value, even in a bullpen or long relief role for the Dodgers. But between him and then Bobby Miller, who is right right there with him as far as in the rankings here, which one are you most likely to invest in for 2023? When we were talking to Russell about that, we were talking about him liking him, liking, excuse me, Gavin Stone. I wasn't going to say who I was talking about there. (laughs) We were talking about him liking Gavin Stone for the same reasons he liked Spencer Strider last year. And Russell was a guy who was drafting Spencer Strider in draft champions leagues last season. So that really made me take a look and I see where he's coming from. And so I'm stuck on Gavin Stone here at Bobby Miller, I like as well. And both of these guys being drafted in every draft champions league, just ahead of that pick 500 that I was talking about earlier with Sal Frelick. So yeah, they're definitely into count. I haven't drafted either one of them yet, but I do expect, especially if they fall a little bit below their average there, I could see myself with having both of these guys rostered in draft champions leagues, but I'm leaning Gavin Stone just based on that conversation that we did have with Russell. And then what I looked at after the fact and kind of 
It, I'm sold. He sold me. <laughs> yeah, not to mention, of course, the Dodgers don't have all of their rotation pieces set in stone, pun intended, there. So with both of these guys in the mix for that situation with the Dodgers, how the Dodgers like to play around with their their pitchers throughout the course of the season as well. I, it'd be behooving me not to talk about Grayson Rodriguez, James, the, you know, Arguably the number one pitching prospect, only one spot below Painter on your list here, but he is being drafted the highest of every any player we've talked about at ADP 205, of course, being drafted in all draft. Every, a lot of people, if not everybody, expects him to break camp in the rotation for the Orioles. Do you trust him enough to take him where he's going? Is that around pick 200 in a draft and hold format? And how early do you think he could be going in March if he looks locked in, not only to the rotation, but just as a pitcher in spring training? Yeah, this is a pretty similar situation with to Jordan Walker, where a really talented player could definitely return value at this current ADP, but I would be comfortable taking him here after seeing him throw in spring training, look healthy, look polished. If I saw that in March, then I would be okay taking Grayson Rodriguez around pick 200. But that's obviously not how it's going to work. If he does that <laughs> in March, he's going to start going around pick 140. I, I'm not even considering him right now at that in that range. I look at the players that are available there. I would much rather take someone like Josh Naylor or Riley Green. And even like on the pitching side, I would take Aaron Ashby over Grayson for this coming season, knowing what I know now. So it's I'd, I'd rather take Lars Newtbar. It's just not a range where I would be considering him, but he could definitely return it. I just, that's not a big swing I'm looking to take at that point in the draft right now. A couple of these guys, as we mentioned, I didn't try to mix and match who was going to be a starter or reliever, but James, if you had to guess which one of these guys on this list will debut as a starter and maybe even have the best chance of staying in a rotation, which ones do you expect to move into a relief role at least during their 2023 tenure? Sure. So Painter, Rodriguez, Uri Perez, Ricky Tiedemann, Kyle, Har- Kyle Harrison. I would expect them to probably debut as starters, stick as starters. I would expect Gavin Williams, Gavin Stone, Brandon Fatt to debut as starters, stick as starters. I think Taj Bradley could debut out of the bullpen. I think Tanner Bibby, Bobby Miller, Robert Gosser, Brian Mata, Jack Leiter. Actually, no. I don't think Jack Leiter would debut out of the bullpen. But I think he's I think he's just he might just be a total bust. We'll see. But yeah, I think it's intuitive, but the higher I have him ranked, the sure. more more confident I am in them, in them sticking as a starter. And you're not the first ranker to tell me that in some fashion or another. Who do you prefer? Don't you? I love seeing those questions. Who do you prefer? This guy or this guy? Well, just that's why I have a list. <laughs> <laughs> just go look at the list. <laughs> yeah. I, Kevin, the last thing I want to talk to you, on the same note, we talk about it all the time, the value of these relievers in these draft and hold formats that we we place on them. Knowing that some of these guys are going to come in as a reliever in a certain situation, do you, are you more apt to be attracted to those types of play, those prospects, those pitching prospects, knowing that if they're coming up, even in a long relief role, they could still add those that extra value as opposed to somebody who might even struggle like even Grayson Rodriguez might struggle as a starter in a rotation, but he's not going to be moved out of that position. 
depends on the format draft and holds i'm more interested in guys that i think will be with the team sooner even if that means as part of the bullpen first and as you said that we can get value from them as relievers even if they're not closing and if we like the ratios they're good strikeout guys then we can plug them in there and hope to vulture a save here and there and pick up a win from time to time in fab leagues. And there's not many fab leagues being drafted yet, but we're starting another one on Monday with our on the wire listener leagues in fab leagues right now is the only team I'm going to have Grayson Rodriguez on is a team I'm drafting in, in December where I'm getting him at pick 200 or later on a team where if he does not make the opening day rotation, I will dump him right away. I'm not going to pay the price that we'll have in March if he's named to the rotation. So it really depends on format. And I think these guys, even that early in a draft, I'm coming to realize, and I think I brought it up a couple of weeks ago, Rob Silver talked about this in Arizona a little bit. We talk all off season long and the closer we get to the season, we talk about it even more. These guys, who are we picking with our last couple of picks in our fab league drafts so that we don't spend fab on them early in the season. I'm taking a lot more in my fab leagues. I'm taking shots starting in the mid teens round 15, 16, which is where Grayson Rodriguez's ADP is for a 12 team league. That's when I'm going to start. I, there, I can draft 15 guys that may not be on my team for week one of the season <laughs> right. if I'm drafting a fab league right now. Yeah, and that's fair. Especially if that's fair to say in fab leagues that you're drafting before the calendar flips over to 2023. For sure. Because yeah. a lot of things can change before March draft season comes along. James, while well, we got you, I know we held on to you for a decently long time. And I appreciate your time. Is there anybody that we haven't talked about here? This is the wild, that everybody's favorite wildcard question that you think could end up being a long shot to make a, make a jump into the major leagues with enough time to actually provide value that aren't isn't on your top 100 not really i would expect that we'll see the tigers guys that are towards the back of my top 200 wilmer flores and reese olsen i assume we'll see them at some point but i'm not that bullish on them we haven't talked about brandon fat much ph or p-f-a-a-d-t brandon fat with the uh, diamondbacks i know he's in my top 100 but he's absolutely a target for me where he's going ADP of 438 I think he makes the opening day rotation for the D-backs he might be their second best starter behind Zach Allen and he was really impressive in the PCL last year and the PCL ate up plenty of good pitchers his teammates Dre Jamison Ryan Nelson both put up terrible numbers in the PCL and then had success in the big leagues but Fat was just successful against PCL hitters in those tough conditions. He's got a full pitch mix, really good command, really good delivery. I just I think there's a ton to like there, and I like the 438 ADP there. Nice, nice final call out there, Kevin. Did you have any additional final words of wisdom you want to impart onto everybody? 
just a reminder, we've talked about this a lot, but it has not come up today, maybe right at the beginning a little bit. But when you're looking at ADP, we really got to be careful with what our filters are now, especially with these gladiator leagues, 60 overall drafts on NFBC ADP right now, 30 of them are DCs. 20 of them are gladiator, which drastically changes things when people are drafting for a team in November or December with no bench for 2023. Big changes. For example, we know how much the closers are pushed up even in DCs, but even further in gladiator. The ADP of Diaz and Class A is the one, two turn in gladiator. In DCs, it's the two, three turn. So overall, it's a it's in the middle there, definitely. And then we're already to the point where we can start filtering the dates as well. Maybe kick out October and see what's happened since November first. There's been quite a few changes. We were just talking about Grayson. Grayson, <laughs> excuse me, I'm all tongue tied here. We were just talking about Rodriguez, and he's being drafted higher throughout the past month than he was being drafted in October already so it's some things to take a look at when you're filtering your adp yeah i was going to mention the date thing matt mervis comes to mind his, i know i said his adp was like 290 but in the month of november it's 260 and obviously that's a lot earlier especially with what's happening in the afl so yeah great advice there as we've mentioned we have our listener league our second league starting up on monday if you're interested in joining any of our listener leagues we have drafts every month throughout the season check out our pin tweet and sign up for one of those as well. James, thanks so much, man, for taking the time, the extra time to join us and talk through a lot of these players. For whatever reason, if somebody's listening and they don't know where to find you, can you remind them where they can find you and what you might be working on? Sure. Just first of all, really thanks for having me, fan of the show. But it's, I think check out rotowire.com, first of all. We've been doing a ton of work this offseason, had a ton of player outlooks up there. I write most of the ones on prospects and pretty much any prospect with any kind of a, an ADP has an outlook up there uh, right now. So definitely head over to Brodewire and then you can follow me on Twitter at RealJRAnderson. And that's where I tweet out all my work. And then the podcast, usually Wednesdays, this week's podcast is a Thursday, but I'll be having guests on all off season. Yeah, that's great. That's why I said Thursday. I listened to your Ryan Ruff episode today as we're recording this. It came out yesterday on Thursday. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, check that out every Wednesday throughout the course of the off season. James does great work there with all the different guests that he has on with different, uh, different varieties of topics. Obviously, you focused on closers in the relief market this past on this past episode. But you're all you're all over the place. You're talk, touching on pretty much everything when it has to do with uh, fantasy baseball heading throughout the offseason. So if you're not listening to that already, make sure you're adding that to your repertoire. And that's going to do it for episode 89 of On The Wire. We're back every Sunday with more insights and analysis as the offseason trudges on. So please make sure to subscribe, share, review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can follow myself on the Twitter at 80 grade. That's all spelled out. Kevin is at Hasting Kevin. And of course, follow the pod itself at On The Wire Pod. I'd like to once again, thank our guest James Anderson for joining us. He should be joined. He should be followed at Real J.R. Anderson on the Twitter. And after all that, I am Adam Howe on behalf of Kevin Hastings. Thanks for listening. We bid you goodbye.